if you're not careful, travel can lead to romance. And the next thing you know, you're living in Spain. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're getting a first-hand account of what it's like to fall in love overseas and marrying into a different culture. American Jennifer Iglesias grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, then married a Spaniard. She'll tell us all about raising a bicultural family in the middle of Madrid. Later in the hour, we'll get a glimpse of another Mediterranean country with a romantic appeal, Greece. We'll consider its must-see sights and the little-seen back roads and share a few tips on tavernas, souflaki, and what to do beyond Athens. We'll open the hour with your calls. Tell us your stories, especially how you've avoided being the target of a tourist scam. Come along as we get better acquainted with our fascinating world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we'll hear about marrying into a foreign culture, and we'll get a peek at how to make the most of a trip to Greece. First, let's hear from you at 877-333-RICK or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Tell us your travel stories, share your advice on how to avoid travel scams, and recommend a few sites off the beaten path for us to explore this year. We're at 877-333-7425, or reach us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Robert's on the line in Moscow, Idaho. Hi, Robert. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Um, I want to actually. I want to thank you for uh, having written your Europe Through the Back Door book so many years ago because it got me traveling like I would never have traveled before. So I really appreciate your philosophy. That intro in that book is great. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of not necessarily just you know practical little tips, but general philosophy of travel that can really help people get their travel dreams in focus. I think it gets you out of your hotel room. You don't sit there scared. Exactly. Well, that's good to hear. Thanks. Um, we were traveling in Italy a while back. And it was great with all the wonderful sites. And one of the things that we've discovered that was really wonderful was visiting with all the locals and our fellow travelers. And one of the things that would come up with when talking with your fellow travelers is, oh, well, there's this great museum here, or there's a wonderful gelati over there. And we'd slowly uh, pick up a list of information that kind of traveled from traveler to traveler. And one of the topics that comes up a lot is how to stay safe. And so we'd kind of collect a uh, collection of stories from people who've had trouble with having things uh, lifted from their pockets or whatever. And so we were uh, on our way from Rome. We were leaving Rome where we had had a wonderful stay visiting all the Rick Steve sites. <laughs> and we talked to the uh, lady behind the desk who had um, wonderful things to say about Naples and where we were going to see Pompeii. And so we were going to head on down that way, and she said that she had just been back from Naples and had her uh, luggage stolen off of her back seat. Someone had just, she'd come to a stop sign, someone opened the door, and away went her luggage. And this was an Italian woman? Yes, this was an Italian woman. But it's, the information that travels around is between, of course, all the travelers. They're sure. all talking about not only what they see, but how to stay safe. Mm-hmm. And... She said, well, this, this happened to me. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. And one of the things that we do is we always carry a carabiner with us, which, for those that don't know, this is a, a climbing hook. It's a, it's a clip. And they're very, very strong. They handle like 4,000 pounds of stress. And they weigh practically nothing because you have to carry it up a cliff. Hmm. And you can get them at any outdoor store. And when we're in airports or train stations or other things, we'll clip all our bags together. And if someone tries to do a grab and dash, they have to carry all the bags dragging with them. Mm-hmm. And if you're near something that's stationary, you clip it into something stationary. So there we were in heavy traffic near where Pompeii was. We were all boxed in, and I'm looking for how to get, get over to the side so we can find a place to park. And my wife suddenly screams, and I look in the back seat, and there's this guy. And he's reaching for the camera bag. And he grabs the camera bag, and then... Marilyn's bag goes, and then my bag goes, and then the seatbelts click in, mm. and suddenly he, he panics and hops back on his moped and weaves off through traffic. With nothing. With nothing. 
Because of your carabiner. Because of our carabiner. You had all your luggage seat belted in, essentially. All the luggage was was clipped together and seat belted in. It would have taken. It was a Gordian knot of, of luggage, uh. <laughs> and so um, he got away with nothing. And recently, a friend of ours had something stolen in Belgium. That if they had clipped it into the train in which they were in the person yeah. would have had the same effect. So that's my hot tip. Robert, that's great. And, and I think one of the points is you don't really even need a lock. You know, it's just got to not go. Right. It, I think, I, even though I, I really shouldn't say on, you know, on a big radio program, but it's the surprise that suddenly what you thought was a small bag now weighs 50 pounds and it's yeah. all gangly yeah. that really throws them off. That's great. Well, that's a very good tip. Thanks. And uh, how was the rest of your visit at Pompeii? (laughs) Uh, It didn't go very well because we hadn't gotten to Pompeii yet. And that kind of, we tried to remain lighthearted about it. But even though you're victorious in the small, there's a little bit of unsettling feeling. It sort of rattles you, yeah. So this is an unfortunate thing. But the lady behind the desk also had a wonderful recommendation of a um, monastery on the Amalfi Coast that we stayed at that was just spectacular. Wow, I bet that would be. Robert, thanks for your tips. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. And uh, continued good travels. Uh, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We have Bonnie on the line from Rancho Mirage in California. Hi, Bonnie. Hi there. How are you today? Great. Thanks for calling. Yes. I'd love to tell you about our little town of Republic, Washington, up in the uh, high Cascades. Republic, Washington. Now, you're, you live in Rancho Mirage now? I'm just here for the winter. Oh, I see. Republic, that's in uh, northeastern Washington State. It is, yes, right on Lake Curlew. Uh, We have a lake up there. The town is one of these gold rush towns that was founded right around uh, 1896. All of the gold mines are shut down at this point in time, so they're relying pretty heavily on tourism. Hmm. It's approximately a a four-and-a-half-hour drive over the North Cascade Highway. We're roughly located... Four and a half hours from what? From Seattle? Oh, say from Snohomish, uh, Everett. Okay, so area. if you want to get there from Seattle, about five hours, and you get to yeah. go over this incredible North Cascades Highway. Oh, unbelievable views up there. So you'd propose a, a scenic drive from, let's say, Seattle, four hours north and then east over the Cascades on this uh, dramatic new mountain highway we've mm-hmm. got. And then you come to your little town of Republic. What's the population of Republic? Uh, 974. 974. What was the peak during the gold rush? Oh, I think it was up to almost 5,000, 5 to 6,000. So you're kind of living in half a ghost town. Oh, close to it. And then there is several um, real ghost towns not too far away. In addition to the drive across the North Cascades Highway, you can continue on east over Sherman Pass, which is the highest pass in the state of Washington, and drop down to Kettle Falls, Colville, and then continue on down to Spokane if you wanted to make a a weekend getaway out of it. Well, tell me about these ghost towns, because, of course, there's lots of great scenery in Washington State, but uh, the history seems a little sparse. So we got these ghost towns here? Mm, we do. Between Republic and... A town called Orville, there is a side trip up to a ghost town called Molson, and it's basically in uh, arrested deterioration from Memorial Day to Labor Day. The Grange keeps the museum open. Did you say arrested deterioration? <laughs> yeah, they try and keep it as sound. <laughs> so it's like it's de- it's almost deteriorated to the point of falling down, and they've decided to stop it from falling down so people can come and visit it. That's correct. And the Grange is doing that. The Grange is doing that. Open up. throughout the summer, throughout the tourist mm-hmm. season. And they have the Molson School, which is a three-story school building. This is Molson, M-O-L-E-S-O-N? Mm-hmm. And you get a little glimpse of the country school uh, 100 years ago. That's correct. And the buildings, the cabins, uh, the little town is still preserved there. Uh, The buildings are open. You can wander through them, take a look at Hmm. how life was in that area. Sounds great. Well, we'll have to put that on our our list of things to see and do. Mm Mm-hmm. It's fun. uh, Bonnie, thanks very much. Okay, you're welcome. Bye now. Bye. Jeremy in Blacksburg, Virginia, emails us, Milan Memorial Cemetery was awesome. I think it's rarely visited. It's full of great sculpture and important remembrances. I found it while being somewhat lost wandering Milan's back streets and parks. 
Boy, I've got I've to compliment you, Jeremy. You found my favorite cemetery in all of Europe, filled with uh, tombstones and dramatic, melodramatic art from about 1870 to 1930. Super romantic cemetery, Milan's Memorial Cemetery. We have Deborah on the line in Babylon, New York. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for your call. So, uh, so my story is about a, a trip that we were taking in Andalusia, uh-huh. and we were uh, on our way up to the Parador that's located on the grounds of the Alhambra. Ah, in Granada, southern right. Spain. Okay. And it's, um, it's apparently a very famous Parador, presumably one of the most beautiful in Spain. I think it's a, a converted monastery, and yeah. there's really only one road to get there, and it's way up on the top of a of a mountain, and... Um, so just so people know, Deborah, this is a, like you said, a, a grand old monastery that's been turned into a plush luxury hotel. Right, it was our one splurge. And it's right in the, mi- it's actually on the grounds of the Alhambra, that palace of the, the Moorish kings from right. hundreds of years ago. Okay. Right. And prior to visiting that city, we had found that, unlike a lot of other places we travel, I went with my with my boyfriend at the time, um, there was not a lot of English spoken in, in Spain, so certainly not in this part of Spain. Mm-hmm. And so as we're driving up the road to get to the Parador, there's a, a guy in the middle of the road flagging us down. And he's wearing jeans and, uh, and a white shirt. He stopped us in the middle of the road, and he told us that we shouldn't go any further because the parking lot up at the hotel was completely full. And his English was flawless. Mm. And he pointed to the side of the road where there was like a small cafe and a tourist bus parked. And he said, you really should pull over here, and we'll take care of your, of your car and your luggage. It's pointless to go up to the top of the hill because you won't be able to park your car. And because the tourist bus was there and because there was a restaurant nearby, we actually considered that this might be plausible. So we pulled off the side of the road, and we discussed it and decided, well, he's not in a uniform but his English is great, you know, and we couldn't really tell if he were representing the hotel or not. And we finally decided just to go up to the top of the hill and see what was going on. And we, we drove around him, and we got to the hotel. And, of course, when we got there, uh, there was plenty of parking in the wow. parking lot. And the desk clerk, who also did speak English very well, we tried to explain to him that there's a person down the hill who's trying to waylay tourists on the way up there. And uh, he really didn't understand what we were trying to say. But it, it, I, was, I was unnerved for about three days after that because I kept thinking, well, what if we had actually yes. listened to this guy? That was a and I'm from call. New York, and I, you know, I, I figure I don't fall for stuff like that. So it was, it was surprising to me. A lot of savvy people, they get out of their comfort zone and, and yep. you just get a little, um, a little overwhelmed and it's easy to be confused and, and make a mistake like that. That would have been quite a disaster. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we would have lost our car, our yeah. luggage, everything. Whoa. Well, good for you. You got through that one. How was the rest of your trip? The rest of the trip was great. <laughs> good. It was uneventful. Oh, I'm glad that it was uneventful. Okay, thanks for your tip. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. We'll find out what it's like for an American to fall in love with a Spaniard and raise a family in Madrid. Next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Kaji Meitame Oledapash, Aingwa Masailand, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. That's in my Masai language. My name is Meitame Oledapash. I'm from Masailand in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Steve. Kaji Meitame Oledapash, Naingwa Masailand, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. American Jennifer Iglesias married Spanish tour guide Carlos Galvin a few years ago. She's here to tell us her story about raising a bicultural family in Madrid. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jennifer, you grew up in the United States? Yes. Where? I'm, I'm actually from Seattle. And how long have you been in Spain? I've been living there for four years, but I, uh, my first time in Spain was in 1997. So. When did you meet Carlos? I met Carlos in 1997. Ah, and now you're living there. You've, and now you're currently living in Madrid, and you and Carlos have two little kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. We have uh, William, who's three, and Olivia, who's five months. So this is a chance to, to share with American uh, travelers. I, I know so many people that, well, fall in love with Spaniards in their travels. It's a romantic place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's very, very romantic, yes. But I, I think it's pretty high risk to fall in love with somebody from another culture because it's exotic and it's new and it's, like, surprising. But the reality is two kids, four years, you're into the grind now. <laughs> That's right. In Madrid. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of challenges that go with that that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're falling in love. Right. Now, American women may not know it, but they've got a pretty good situation as far as uh, women's rights and so on and, and uh, being able to get out and, and make things happen. Uh, let's talk not about a mother in Spain, but just a woman in Spain, an American woman. Now you're living in Spain. How's that? It's, you know, when I first moved there four years ago, um, I had a big challenge in front of me because I was actually pregnant when I moved there. And so I was not thinking about all of the um, barriers that come up with living in another country, but more about being pregnant at the time. But now that I've been there for a while, I've had a chance to think about it. And um, certainly there are a, a lot of challenges. And as a woman, Certainly one of the biggest for me was, you know, I studied political science and graduated from the University of Washington. And the challenge of getting a job in another country, that's something that you you expect that you're going to do once you graduate. And that becomes a, an immediate barrier for you because the opportunities just aren't there when you go to another country. Because you're a woman or because you're a foreigner? More because I'm a foreigner. You need to have a very good command of the language. And it's just a different system that exists over there um, professionally in terms of the opportunities. So that was that was one big challenge for me. What's your take on just the status of women, whether you're an American in Spain or a Spaniard in Spain? How were Spanish women treated? I think um, they're, they're treated very well. Um, in my experience, I think that Spain has come a long way in terms of uh, rights for women and certainly uh, from the Franco days where you probably would find a lot of people who can tell stories of um, your very traditional setup of mom staying at home. She's taking care of the family, doing all of the, the shopping and the cooking and the cleaning and that, and that kind of thing. But now Spain has changed so much. You have um, a lot of women who are working now, and they're uh, facing all of the challenges that American women faced as well in terms of how to balance children, work, home, family, all of that. So the modern Spanish woman is uh, confronted with the same challenge as the modern American woman is. Absolutely. You want to be Absolutely. a mom, you want to be professional, you want mm-hmm. to be out there. And it's a macho world. I mean, Spain is one of the most macho places, so there is that male dominance, isn't there? There is, absolutely. And I think that you can even find some differences between the two cultures, American and Spanish, uh, for women in terms of the choices that the Spanish women are making these days compared to what they grew up with, seeing their mothers with very mm-hmm. limited choices. And so they're choosing sometimes not to have children. They're hmm. choosing to have careers. Right now, there's more women in the universities in Spain than men. And so they're opting out for something different. And whether that be an influence from the Franco days or not, I don't know. But they do have choices now. And that's the important thing. If you were a betting person, uh, which country would have a, a woman president first, America or Spain? Ooh, I think well, I would still have to say America before okay, Spain. Okay, so Spain is catching up. Okay, <laughs> I would imagine up. over the years uh, a lot of guys have courted you and a Spaniard won the Jennifer Derby or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> How does Spanish guys romance and court differently than, than American guys? 
Well, um, I don't think. Or is it's, it the same? Is it fundamentally the same? I think it's very, very similar. In our situation, you know, it was the, your typical: you meet and you go out on a date, and you get to know each other. And obviously, I was a foreigner at the time, so the whole thing is very romantic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in one of the greatest cities in the world, in Madrid, and you have all these wonderful romantic places to go to and to experience and to discover new things. And when I met Carlos, that was part of the romance was just learning about his culture from a, a Spanish perspective, and maybe if he was with a Spaniard, it would have been different. But um, for an American, I think that I was very taken by all of that. If if somebody was planning a trip, a second honeymoon or whatever to Madrid, uh, what's some idea of a good romantic uh, place to go? Oh, I think that there's many wonderful romantic places to go. Madrid is one of them in terms of just wonderful monuments to see and museums. And there's beautiful places to go see the sunset. Mm -hmm. Um, And some little places that are tucked away cafes and bars and things that can also be very romantic. It's a very social setting. cozy ambience, and everybody's out in the streets, even though it's a huge city. What is it, three or four million or something? Yes, yes. It's it's very social, and just being out, you're always entertained, and so that's part of it is you're able to experience the culture while if you were on your honeymoon, for example, you could do a mix where you, you include a city, for example, Madrid, and then do a beach setting either in Barcelona or down in the south in Andalusia. Were you married in Spain? or the U.S.? We were actually married in the U.S., but we we say that we had three weddings. Uh, we had our official wedding in front of a judge, and then we had a church wedding here in Seattle, and then we had a formal reception in Madrid, which actually we had more participants, um, more people coming to that than we did here in, in Seattle. Boy, you sure see the people uh, decked out in all of their uh, wedding day finery at the city hall in, oh, in, yeah. in Madrid, and yeah. I mean, as you always see that. Yeah, and also churches. I, I always recommend to people, if they have an opportunity, if they're walking on the street and they see people pile out into the street from a church, and you can probably see the bride, la novia, as they call it in Spain, um, stop and, you know, don't feel awkward about staring at all these people. They actually like to be seen, and it's it's a very wonderful experience to... That's good permission, because I always oh, feel I like I'm gawking or something, but uh, the bride would say, sure, I'm all dressed up, I'm, absolutely. I'm looking great, take a photo. Well, they take a lot of time, and <laughs> they take time both in shopping for what they're going to wear and getting ready that they definitely want to be seen. Sure. Now you're married. Uh, what's the in-law situation? I mean, you're right there in, in Madrid. Are, are Carlos's parents around? Carlos's parents live in Madrid. And when we first decided we were going to move back to Spain, that was one of the issues was where we were going to live. And because I was pregnant, I, I decided, you know, it's important that we have the support system of the family. So we decided on Madrid. Do you have the, uh, like, pushy in-laws and the mother-in-law situation and all this kind of thing? You know, I I think I have a very exceptional situation. Um, Carlos's parents are absolutely wonderful. Not to say that other in-laws aren't. I have lots of American friends who live in Madrid and who are married to Spaniards. And I've heard many positive things. But in my situation, I was extremely fortunate to get a wonderful set of in-laws who have been so helpful to us, um, having the support of our in-laws to, you know, through mm-hmm. our children and family and everything else. You got two toddlers. You gave birth two times in Madrid? Mm-hmm. Um, one time in Madrid and one time on the coast uh, near Valencia. Okay. How was the health care that you had? Um, it was, I had a very positive experience. It's funny because many Americans ask me, what's it like to have a baby in Spain? Or, you know, when I was actually first pregnant, they'd say, is it safe? And and I'd say, well, actually, they've been having babies for a lot longer than we have. So I think that <laughs> I have a lot of confidence in the system. And in fact, I did have very good experiences in terms of the staff and the doctors. They were all very wonderful, both, both systems. I um, actually had one child through a private care system and then one child in the public socialized system. So, so they have national health care. Mm-hmm. And you've, you're into that now? Yeah, we ha- we actually have both. Do they have the thing where the dad, like, you know, when we had our kids, I was there helping and took the classes and all that kind of thing. Are the men welcome in the birth room? Absolutely, but it is... Is it trendy curi- or is it kind of weird? It's curious to me because I do ask friends of ours who are Spanish, is your respective other going to be there? And, and, and they say, oh, well, they haven't decided or, you know, and I, to me it seems alarming that they wouldn't be there. And, of course, you know, Carlos was with me the whole time for during both births. So I think it depends on the individual. So the, the men are welcome in there if they want they to. They are Doctors welcome. have no problem yeah, with it. Yeah, absolutely not. 
I'm talking with Jennifer Galvin. Jennifer, do you go by Jennifer Galvin or your maiden name? Um, I actually go by Jennifer Iglesias Galvin. Okay. And so in Spain, we have two names. Is we, that right? we have our maiden name and then we the, our married name. And what will your kids go by? My my children will go by um, uh, Galvin Iglesias. So it's the, flip the, it. the reverse. Yes. So you are the Jennifer... father's name first and then my name second. But you put your maiden name first and Carlos's yes. family name yes. second. Yes, Interesting. And it's nice because that's a tradition in Spain. In fact, Carlos, he only goes by one name, but in fact, he does have two names, as every Spaniard and some Spaniards oh, okay. can name off a whole line of names that come from a very long generation. And so I think it's nice because it's it sort of celebrates both names. Yeah. I think it's that's, very progressive in that, that respect. That is quite progressive. So, Jennifer, parenting. Now, you've had a little dose of parenting in Spain um, in a big city, and you live right downtown, don't you? It's not I like live, you move into the suburbs. Yeah. I live right in the center of town in a very old um, neighborhood called Barrio de las Letras. It's a 16th century neighborhood, so it's a wonderful history lesson for my kids every time we go out. <laughs> now, this is fascinating for me that you are there, obviously an American. you got kids that probably are learning to speak English and Spanish. Mm-hmm. You're surrounded by um, Spanish. You're dealing with the uh, post-9-11 world. There's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, political energy in the air. Mm-hmm. I know that Spain elected a president that took them out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, you had a demonstration where, what, three-quarters of the four million Madrid people were out in the streets de- yeah. uh, demonstrating against our American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. You're raising kids there. You're an American. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Well, um, for me, it's been a very good experience, a very positive one. One thing about the culture, um, about the Spanish culture that I can say is it's a very warm culture and it's very family-oriented, very children-oriented. And I've felt nothing but great things ever since I had my kids. And that means I I feel a tremendous amount of trust and confidence of the people um, where we live in the center of town. Often we, you know, take a lot of walks on a daily basis, in fact, two or three times a day. And where we live, it's very easy to get to know all of the people around, including people who run their businesses right, right there in the center. And my son has been very well accepted by all of the people in the neighborhood. He's very friendly with all of them and knows, you know, for example, the lady that works at the pharmacy, she knows him by his first name and always gives him little Carmelos when he comes by. And wow. and it's, it's a wonderful experience for me that I would not have had had I been in a situation where I was living in the suburbs and spent mm-hmm. a lot of time in the car to transport myself. I, it's kind of a utopian, good old days kind of urban situation for raising kids. Very much so. And I actually grew up in the suburbs, so for me it's it's a very different lifestyle. And raising little kids in the big city. Mm-hmm. I've got Absolutely. a friend who raised American kids in Barcelona. He had the same experience. Mm-hmm. We have Jack on the phone from San Fernando Cadiz in Spain. Hi, Jack. Hi, how are you? Good. You're actually calling from Spain? Yes, I am. Well, thank you. And tell us your experience in regards to, uh, you know, moving into the Spanish culture. Well, it's been a, it's been a long one. Uh, I've been here a little over 30 years now. Jennifer, you're just getting started there in Madrid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been worthwhile, though. How long have you been married in Spain? Uh, I've been married for 27 years. You're American and you married a Spanish woman? That's, I, that's right. That's How right. is it? <laughs> oh, it's fine. I'm still here. <laughs> what, what sort and of cultural I, I, challenges? I'll be here, I, I'm sure, for, for the rest of my life. You know, I think it's, it's been a very, very enjoyable experience. I would recommend it, but, uh, you know, you have to, like, like, I'm sure that Jennifer would agree that uh, marrying anyone is a challenge, and, and joining two people with all their likes and dislikes is always a challenge. And when you have cultural inter- interferences, it can be even more of a challenge. But it makes it more interesting, too. Are you accepted in your community, Jack? Definitely. Very, very much so. I mean, the, I think that one thing that uh, is very predominant in Spain is the very, very outgoing and receptive of other Europeans or Americans. Um, I've had absolutely no problem whatsoever. Totally the reverse. I think it's it's been very helpful. As far as employment, well, I had to create my own employment. I have uh, language schools um, because I came here with not speaking any Spanish whatsoever. And unemployment is very high, so it is, it is difficult for people to come... Uh, in fact, what I did really would couldn't be done now legally. It would be very, very difficult for an American to come here and to get started as I did on a very, you know, very low budget. Nowadays, if you know, if you come with a large company supporting you, or you come with a lot of money, that that probably be be okay. But just to come over, I wouldn't recommend anyone just coming over and say, hey, "I'm going to find a job." 
right. unless you're a European. Now, Jack, Cadiz is a big U.S. military base, isn't it? Well, Rota? across the other side of the bay from Cadiz, there is a large military base. Were you part of that? Is that your reason Never. to be there? No. Okay. No, I, uh, I was a Peace Corps uh, type in 60... I went to Peace Corps in 62. Okay. And... Um, I never was in the military. And you just got snared there during your travels? Snared by Mari Carmen? No, not exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I snared her. All right. Uh, first time I was in Spain, actually, I, I flew in from what used to be a, a Spanish colony, Rio Muni, uh, at that time. Now it's called the uh, Spanish Guinea. I flew into Madrid, and then I went on into France and stayed there for a while. But then I came back a few months later, and then, well, quite a few years later, actually, I came back to stay, and that's been ever since I've been here. Did you raise any children? Yes, yes. I have two sons, now, are, are uh, both they... of whom live in the United States now, one in uh, in Hollywood, Florida, and another in Atlanta, Georgia. The eldest one is an uh, engineer, and he has set up his life, and he's very, very happy in, in Florida. And the one that's in Atlanta is absolutely convinced he's going to be coming back here in a couple of years. And we hope he... Uh, he does so. When you raised them, did you uh, assume they would go back to the United States, or did you think they'd stay in Spain? Well, you know, I facilitated the, the possibility of studying university in the States. Mm. Universities now in Spain are quite changed from what they were uh, even, let's say, 10 years ago, or even, even less than that. Now they're very, very fine universities, very good, uh, both private and state universities. Now communications, you know, being what they are, they're we're in contact very, very frequently. We see each other very frequently, and uh, it's not like when I came here. There was, you know, there was. I didn't have a telephone, for example. Right. It wasn't, you know, the lone internet like they have now. So, Jack, ten years ago, a parent would would want their kids to go to school in America, and you're saying now the universities are better, so that maybe Jennifer would have her kids going to school in Spain with no concerns. I think it's very likely she would have her kids mm-hmm. going to school in, in Spain, at least uh, undergraduate school. It depends really what they want to do as sure. well. If they want to go into anything official, then they really, let's say, to be an engineer in Spain, you have to be licensed in Spain. You have to have your university degree here. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to convalidate studies from the United States to Spain. All right. Jack, thanks very much for your call. Well, thank you. Best wishes in the south of Spain. Thank you. More with Jennifer about marrying into Spain and raising a family in Madrid as we continue on Travel with Rick Steves. And then we'll head to the other end of the Mediterranean as we set sail for Greece. Jennifer Iglesias Galvin is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking at the realities of being an American, marrying into the culture of Spain, and raising a family in the middle of Madrid. And in a few minutes, we'll get an overview from tour guide David Willett on how to get the most out of a visit to Greece. What's been the hardest thing for you to get used to culturally, uh, living, raising kids, being married into Spain? Um, there's, you know, there's daily challenges because I'm, I've been saying nothing but positive things and, and I, I really love Spain. But there's, it's not to say that there aren't things that we come across every day and especially having children and being married. And probably one of the biggest challenges is the, the language barrier. And that is um, expressing yourself, making yourself understood. It's it's very, very important. You know, if I was living here in the States, it would be very easy for me. And when you have difficulties with something, whether it be somebody at the school or in the healthcare system or whatever, to be able to express yourself, ask questions that are very important to you. Sometimes if, if you're not understood, that can, you know, turn into How's something. Your Spanish? My Spanish, I'm, I'm, people would say I'm fluent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After four years, I'm pretty fluent. But I, I still feel, you know, I have um, a lot to learn in terms of expressions and things like that. But apart from communicating, what are the, mm-hmm. there must have been some frustrations that you just say, ah, these Spaniards, I can't handle it anymore. 
Um, yes, some of this, the way things work, the systems um, can be a little bit slower. There's a so lot a of heavy red bureaucracy. tape. Yes. Carlos once told me when I was working with your husband making a TV show, you have to, we tried to get permission to film in the cathedral in Toledo. Yeah. And they kept saying no. And he, and he said, you have to be told no seven, seven <laughs> times. And then if you ask again, you'll be told maybe yes. But, but do you have that, this heavy lumbering bureaucracy? Absolutely. And especially, you know, I'm a person that I like to get to the point real quick and um, be able to resolve something very quickly. But in, in this case, it, it, sometimes it's extremely frustrating but where you can't. school... Health, safety, social, no problems, really. No no problems. I mean, just outside of things that, you know, when you want something done or you want to make a change, that's another challenge is just being able to maybe make a change. Say if we wanted to change from one school to another, that would be very difficult. Do you deal with corruption where you actually have to do cronyism and bribe or anything like that to make something happen? Um in my experience, no. However, mm-hmm. I have learned a lot from my husband. He's always trying to give me tips on how it, I mean, simple things, even going going to the market and um, making purchases. He's always like, Jen, you got to be careful. You got to watch how they're, you know, how they charge you and, and make sure to check your receipt and all of this. And it's it's just a constant challenge. And it is true that in this culture, while they are wonderful and warm people, um, some people will take advantage if they know you're not from there. If, you know, and they might it, assume you're just wealthy and naive because you're, you're an American. Yes, basically. Yeah. absolutely. How about the cost of living? You're traveling in the States right now. Um, how does the cost of living compare to the States and Spain from your point of view? Um, from my point of view, I actually went into the grocery store the other day. Um, it's been a year since I've been home, and I was shocked and amazed by the prices. They've gone up even since I was here last year. And cheaper just for in Spain? Cheaper in Spain. It's just simple things that you find in the grocery store, food items or hygienic items, whatever. Big difference in price. It's very inexpensive in Spain to eat well. Um, That's a fun thing. And people eat out a lot. People eat out a lot. But we also we like to go shopping and cook together as, as a family. And that turns into a family time together. And you can buy really nice cuts of meat and, and things like that to feed your children well. And it sounds like you're determined to stay in Spain and embrace that culture and raise your family Spanish. But you also are staying in touch with your family and relatives and friends in America. Is it easy? What, what are the... Uh, What's the tricks for staying in touch with the media in America and so on? Are you able to maintain your American connections? Yes. It's very important to me now that I have two kids to maintain those connections and those relationships. A lot of people ask me in Spain, Spaniards say, are you happy here? Are you happy in Spain? And I say, yes, I'm happy. The most difficult thing for me is that I have a big family back home and I miss them very much. Right. And it's not it's not easy, when you ha- especially when you have children, to be so far away. It's important to me to maintain all of the traditions that I grew up with. And I also, at some point, would like to have the experience of integrating my children into the American system, maybe for a school year abroad or something like that, so that they can share the same experiences as as I have. Speaking of that, I think one of the most popular destinations for American students in Europe is Spain, to have a year abroad studying in Spain. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for how American students might uh, integrate and get the most out of their experience and deal with homesickness and so on? Mm-hmm. I would say one of the most important things is to develop a support system around you in terms of maybe other Americans. A lot of people go over there with the idea in mind, I'm going to completely integrate myself, um, immerse myself, I'm not going to speak any English. But I think sometimes you know, while that's great because it, it helps you with your language skills and to learn Spanish, it also is important to have relationships with other Americans and other English-speaking people in order to support you in your time away from home. And that's quite easy to do. I know in Spain there's certain, uh, there's American or British radio stations, there's expat community newspapers, there's Absolutely. American churches and so on. Yeah, especially in the big cities. Uh, for example, in Madrid, there's publications that are for the English-speaking community and those are great to be able to look. For example, there's a newspaper called In Madrid, and they have wonderful articles. They have you know wonderful restaurant ideas, suggestions, and I even give those to some of our uh, clients who are coming into town, Americans, because I think it's a great way to connect with the culture. Right. I've been talking with Jennifer Galvin and Jennifer Iglesias Galvin. That's <laughs> right. I'm learning the Spanish system. Uh-huh. And Jennifer works with her husband, Carlos, as a tour guide. And I imagine you also help consult with people who are trying to relocate into Madrid and so on. Mm-hmm. And her website, latengo.com, L-E-T-A-N-G-O.com. And always you can uh, connect with the people who are guests on our show by going to ricksteves.com in the radio corner. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
Good luck with your parenting and adios. <laughs> adios. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling to Greece. I've got with me David Willett. David is uh, an Englishman who spent most of his life in Australia, but his passion is Greece. In fact, he wrote the Lonely Planet guidebook to Greece for 11 years. And David now leads tours for us at Europe Through the Back Door, and it's great to have David Willett in our studios to talk about one of his favorite countries, Greece. David, nice to have you here. Thank you very much, Rick. Why does this Australian like Greece so much? What's the big deal about Greece for you? Well, it's something that goes back to my childhood. Like many things, I was inspired by a teacher in primary school who taught me Greek mythology, and that's something that's uh, stayed with me all my life, and I couldn't wait to get to the places where all these things supposedly happened. I've always thought that you're at a disadvantage if you're trying to understand the ancient sites and you don't know what mythology is all about. I have to say I'm, that's one of my weaknesses. I'm not that enthusiastic about all these mythological stories. Consequently, I look at those uh, broken statues, and they don't mean diddly to me. Uh, wouldn't you say it's, it, it behooves you to learn about mythology if you really want to get excited about the Greek uh, ancient sites? I think it's a big help if you have an interest in mythology, but it's not, it's not strictly necessary because you can see these sites on many levels. You don't need to be an expert in mythology. You don't need to be an expert in history. You can just take them as they are. Now, Athens is really on a roll after the 2004 Olympics. and it, I was there just after the Olympics, and it just feels energized. It's a different city. It, the Olympics have saved Athens. Athens was uh, on a slow road to disaster until they uh, won the Olympics. Okay, a lot of people question the amount of money that was spent on the Olympics in Athens, but really, if the money had not been spent on the Olympics, it would have had to have been spent for some other reason. So, like, Athens is a city of about 4 million people. Four out of, out of every 10 Greeks live in Athens. That's quite amazing to me. Almost half the country is in that great city, and it was a mess. I thought it was the noisiest, most polluted city in all of Europe. Then I went there after the Olympics, and they've really made great strides in cleaning the place up. Yes. The real difference is in the, in the quality of public transport. One of the, the great jokes in Athens is that Greeks are always late for everything. But after they put the metro in, people were actually turning up to work early because they didn't realize how fast it was. Wow, that's great. Now, when you're traveling to Greece, I say see Athens in a hurry and then get out into the countryside. What's your advice for somebody planning a trip to Greece? Well, my advice would be very similar to yours. I'm a country boy and I find two days in Athens is quite enough. And I think it's probably quite enough for most people. Athens is not Greece. It has some of the great sites, but uh, I think that that's a very sensible approach. People need to know, 150 years ago, I think Athens had like six or 8,000 people. It was a little village at the base of the Acropolis. Uh, it had some ancient sites, of course, the Acropolis, mm. the ancient market, the Agora, and then that town of the 19th century is today's little tourist cutesy area, the Plaka, right? Yes. And then it sprawled in the 20th century to 4 million people. So see the Plaka, hang out in the Plaka. That's where you get the restaurants, the nice hotels, the music in the evenings and so on. Mm. Check out the ancient market, the Agora, and the Acropolis on top of the hill. See the wonderful National Museum, and then head on out. Head on out as soon as possible. Then yes. the question is, do they go to the mainland, Peloponnesian Peninsula, Olympia, uh, Delphi, or do they go out to the islands? If you've got limited time, what's your advice there? My advice would be to, uh, which is contrary to most people's advice, is to stay on the mainland. I like the mainland much better because it's, it's less touristy. I, I, think, I feel it's more genuine. If you want to see Greece, then stay on the mainland. If you want to be a tourist, go to the islands. And if you're laying on a beach on the mainland, you don't know you're not on an island. No. I mean, it's very nice. The beaches of the Peloponnesian Peninsula are as Greek islandy as the islands. Well, the name itself, Peloponnese, means the island of Pelops. So There you go. That's, uh, it, is, it is virtually an island. You bring up a very good point, David. I'm talking, by the way, with David Willett. He is a tour guide for Greece, and for 11 years he wrote The Lonely Planet Guide to Greece. We're talking about smart strategies for enjoying Greece. I find Greece is the most tourist, at least explored country in Europe. I mean, at any given point, it seems like 90% of the tourists are in a dozen spots complaining about the crowds. It doesn't seem to stop people following the, the, the crowds to those places either. Well, they like it. I mean, if you go to Eos or Santorini, you're going to be surrounded by Scandinavians and fruity drinks mm. and lovely beaches. Uh, it's a fun scene, but you've got an option, don't you? You definitely have an option. Uh, I think that that scene that you've just described is, is something like a, a post-university rite of passage. You go there, you drink, you party. You sunburn. Go, you get sunburned. you're like yes, me. <laughs> Or me. That's why I don't stay in the sun. And you probably go back and... and can't remember anything. But let's say you want to get away from that and really experience Greece. In, in the modern age, I think you could go to a little town that has no tourism at all, 
Find a town with no postcards, no hotels. Uh, no hotels, you know the word for bed and breakfast in Greece, domatia. Domatia. Great scene. Play backgammon. Develop a taste for Redsina. Uh, give us some tips on you go to some little no-name town. How would you manage? How uh, would you connect with the culture? How would I connect with the culture? Um, the thing that you've raised here is something about communicating with people. And Greeks love to sit and talk. So the way I would go about it would be to go to the local cafe and just make myself known. People throughout the world are very approachable. They're fascinated by the outside world, like as, as we all are. And Greeks are very welcoming. It's very hard to remain by yourself if you go to a small village in the Peloponnese and sit down in a cafe. You won't be allowed to sit by yourself. Really? It's like people, an English pub? Like an English pub, yes. People, really? people, go into people, a cafe. Or is it a taverna, you'd call it? Uh, there are tavernas, there's cafes, there's cafe neons, there's many, there's many different styles of Do places. they have backgammon boards just hanging around? Everywhere has a backgammon board What's the Greek around. word for backgammon? Tavli. Tavli. So you can go in there, you don't have to say if you say tavli. If you say tavli, a big smile will greet you. Is that right? And, so a Greek uh, person, if, if they're challenged to a game of tavli by this uh, funny-looking American traveler, yeah. you're going to have yourself a game. You are definitely going to have yourself a game and a bit of fun too. So there's your perfect social in. And you're not going to get out of there in a hurry either. That's a good experience. That's probably as good experience you can have anywhere. It's just connecting with people playing backgammon in a tavern. I think that's the reason that one really goes to these places is, is to connect with locals. What if and you don't speak Greek? People don't expect you to be able to speak Greek because Greeks themselves consider their language to be very difficult. And English is the second language in, in Greece. People in Greece are very big on education and they feel that to get on in the world, they need to be able to speak English. So if I want to ask somebody a question in English, I just look for someone under 30 and they all speak English. That's right. Young, educated people throughout, anywhere you'll travel, are likely yes. to speak English. And when I travel, I get good at not going to countries where a lot of people speak English, but knowing how to uh, choose people who are more likely to speak English. Anybody in the tourist industry, anybody well-educated, young people, likely to speak English. Is Greece enthusiastic about its membership in the European Union? Greece is was very enthusiastic, but they're, uh, they're very worried at the moment because from being the poor boy in the European Union, since the expansion, they're now halfway up the ladder. And the money is now going down to the people at the bottom of the pile. That's right. With the first, uh, the first sort of uh, group of uh, nations, it was uh, Greece, Portugal, and Ireland that were the poor boys. Yes. And they were getting a lot of money from France and Germany and so yes. on. And every time you see a new freeway, it would have a, a flag with the European uh, circle of stars on it. Telling mm -hmm. you how many euros they'd spent on it. Yes. Brought to you by your friends at the European Union who yeah. recognize you as a weak link in this giant <laughs> free trade zone and want to get you up to speed. Yeah. yeah. Now you've got ten new nations and all of a sudden, Greece is uh, going to be uh, on the paying end rather than the receiving yeah, end. The funds are going elsewhere now, yes. So that has taken a, a little bit of enthusiasm of the European Union out of the Greek people. I wouldn't say it had taken away the enthusiasm for the European Union, but what it's, what it's done is taken away the cash. And sometimes cash does equal enthusiasm. Now, the dollar is not very strong, David. Uh, all over Europe, all over the world, the dollar is weak. Mm. And in Greece, we're going to be using euros how expensive it is for American to travel and what are some good budget tricks? Well, Greece is no longer a cheap destination. For, for many years, it was known as the cheapest place in, uh, in Europe to go on holiday. Unfortunately, since uh, it joined the, uh, the euro basket, that is no longer the case. Prices in Greece have, have soared in recent years. So you really do need to watch your dollars. My tip is to find a place where you have access to cooking facilities because if you're eating every meal in a restaurant, you are very soon going to run out of cash. And I like to stay in a place for a little time rather than constantly moving because that way you get to know a place and you can obviously settle down and start to save a bit of money by not being constantly in restaurants. Retsina. Do they actually like that stuff? Uh, it's an acquired taste, but yes, they, they, they like it very much. What, describe the taste and, and, and a little bit of where it came from. Oh, well, I, I, I think the taste is probably slightly akin to paint stripper. Not that I drink a lot of paint stripper, but uh, it has the same effect on your lips. <laughs> so it's a retina, this it's, pitch. It's, uh, it's like a tar or something. It's, uh, it's mixed with pine resin. And did that originate just because they had to uh, waterproof the barrels? People are unsure about the, uh, the origin, but in a, in a country with lots of wine and lots of pine, I think it's inevitable that the two should come together. The main theory is that it, the pitch was originally used to seal the barrels, and then uh, they thought, hmm, that works quite well. I don't mind the taste either. Well, after three or four glasses, I personally don't mind the taste either. It's, you, get it, you really acquire a taste for that 
disgusting yeah. on the first glass of Retsina. I think you've just got to get past that first sip. My very favorite taste treat in Greece, and it's a wonderful budget trick, is souflaki, the souflaki pita, the wonderful yes. little shish kebab sandwiches. Yes. It costs like $2, even in Athens. You can get it for less than $2, about $1.50 is the standard fare. So that, that is a very good way of eating cheap. Yes. I know people who eat nothing else when they're in Greece. It's a temptation for me. Boy, the Greek language for me is very difficult. And I have to admit, I, I, I learn a few of the niceties, but I'm hopeless when it comes to Greek. How do tourists generally manage? I think with any language, if you make an effort to reach out to them, you will always be made welcome. You don't need to know much Greek. You need to know the basic greetings. If you do that, then you will get by. Well, you don't need to worry about it because one of the strange things about Greece is, is how many people speak English. And you, the younger people are generally the best bet when you want to ask a question in English. A lot of older people have spent time in other countries, so you can never be quite sure. Um, I remember a very funny time when I was down near Sparta and uh, I'd gone looking for a, a giant olive tree that was supposedly hundreds of years old and I'd seen it in the museum and I set out to find it and I got instructions from a pharmacy. I have a theory that pharmacists speak English. Anyway, this day I was completely wrong. The pharmacist spoke no English but there was a customer from New York in there and she drew me a little map of where this tree was. So I set out looking for it and I drove straight past it and after a, a few minutes, I thought, okay, I shall ask the next person I see for directions. And the next person I saw was an elderly shepherd with several hundred sheep wandering through the olive groves. Oh, dear. Well, I said I'd ask the first person. So I got out of my car and I walked over to him and said in my pidgin Greek, where is the big olive tree? And he leant forward on his crook and looked me up and down and uh, said... Would it be easier if I gave you the directions in English? <laughs> he'd, he'd spent 20 years in Toronto. <laughs> you know, I met a lot of older Greeks that spent their working lives in America yeah. and then they retired back in the old country. Yes. Consequently, you got these shriveled up old people that look like they've never been off the farm and they speak New York. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it can be quite bizarre. David Willett, it's great to have you here and it's fun talking and dreaming about traveling in Greece. Thank you very much for your information and happy travels. Thank you very much, Rick. Good to talk to you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.